Our scripture lesson this week comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. It goes like this. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat, by boat to the other side, I'm going to start that one over, okay? When, you don't even have to cut it. I'm just, this is a vulnerability. I just messed that up. I'm going to start again. Here we go. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother this teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, do not be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and he said to them, why all this commotion? Why all this wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say, Thanks be to God. We are continuing our series about TLDR. Too long didn't read regarding the Gospels. We know that there are people who might not know as much about the Gospels as others, and that is totally fine because we are all learning as we go, and we can always know more. During this series, though, we're just kind of taking a look at the Gospel writers themselves, a little bit about their personality that shines through in their writings. Last week, Michael talked to us about Matthew, the historian, and how Matthew thinks helps us all see the connections between Jesus and Moses and the law of the Old Testament that Jesus is fulfilling in the New Testament. Today, Mark has for us some really interesting ways of writing, and I'm excited for us to be able to share those together. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. 
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to set this Bible down right over here real fast as we get ready to, to jump in, right? You know, I'm always excited when, when people much smarter than me are able to, to string together words in some of the most incredible ways. Like consuming really good writing is something that just kind of gets me fired up. I mean, some authors, they're able to write moving stories and others can put together inspirational lyrics for music. There's poets that can move our hearts. I'm sure there's some literary masterpieces that make you have all the feels whenever you hear it, right? On one, uh, one thing that first comes to mind for me is from Hamlet, right? Whenever I was in the 12th grade, I had to memorize the fifth soliloquy. How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. What good is a man if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed a beast and no more? That was my AP English. So like the only way I was passing that was to memorize things. I'm sure we all get a little moved when we hear, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as we heard in Hamilton, when we meet Thomas Jefferson, we're gonna compel him to include women in the sequel work. They told me not to include that, but I did it. By, by most standards, you know, there's an author named William Faulkner who was a pretty good writer. Lots of people say that he was Pretty good. I mean, he won a Nobel Prize for literature. But Faulkner himself, he had a pretty low opinion of his talents. Late in his career, Faulkner gave an interview with a Paris Review and said, I'm a failed poet. I'm a novel. Every novelist, you know, that, that writes novels, they are also trying to write poetry first. But then they figure out that they can't. So they try to write short story, which is the most demanding form of literature after poetry. And failing at that, only then do they take up writing a novel. I mean, to hear William Faulkner tell it, the best writing is the shortest writing. Good writing is the kind that manages to pack a great deal of meaning into the fewest words. And when you encounter that kind of writing, the kind where every word is heavy with meaning, you will not come to understand it better just by adding more words to it. That's exactly why I love the Gospel of Mark. It really is my favorite of the four Gospels. I don't know if you're supposed to have favorites or not, but if we're allowed to, this one's mine. I'm not sure how much study you've put into the book of Mark, but I have to tell you, Mark as a writer is really impressive. The man, I mean, he's a true wordsmith. He can put things together in ways no one else does. Mark's Gospel packs just as much punch as the other three Gospels, despite it being much shorter than the others. By word count, Mark is 30% shorter than the other Gospels. Often Mark tells the same stories as the other Gospels, but Mark tells them more efficiently. Matthew and Luke need 12 verses to tell us the story of Jesus' temptation. Mark only needs two. And then there are other parts where Jesus' story, you know, there in Mark, it doesn't just tell us all the details maybe that other, but it has just the same amount of meaning. You know, Mark entirely skips the Christmas story. I can't imagine leaving that out. Or he only uses a couple words to tell some of the other stories that Mark, the Matthew and Luke make much longer. You know, that's never been said about me. No one's ever said, brevity is my strong suit. 
Mark and I don't have that in common, but I sure wish I did because it's one of the things that makes Mark, Mark's gospel so incredible. And another unique thing about Mark's gospel is that it begins quickly, it ends abruptly, and it moves very fast. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, boom, then you're off. That's how it starts and you're going. And, and once he starts, he's booking it the whole time. Mark moves super fast. He doesn't have long transitions to set up each scene. Mark's favorite word is immediately. We heard it in our text today. The Greek word immediately shows up 80 times in the New Testament. Half of those are in the book of Mark. He says immediately nine times in just the first chapter. His other favorite word is and. If you read Mark straight through, it would feel like this. And Jesus went overseas and did this. And Jesus went here and did that. There's kind of like a race car effect to it. In fact, for centuries, scholars, they studied Mark as if there was no rhyme or reason to its structure. They called Mark a series of pearls on a string because it was as if he was just saying, and then this, and then this. Oh, yeah, and then this, and then this. Now, let me tell you this. But if you're going to know anything about Mark, you need to know that it's brief and it's brisk. But most importantly, that it's written for the bereaved. As we think about the people for whom Mark was writing, those who were reading it whenever he first produced it, it was likely written right after the destruction of the second temple. The temple is essential to the Jewish culture and to life in the first century. Once again, the Jewish, if you don't remember, the Jewish people, they've been persecuted. They've been occupied by a foreign government. And now, as Mark is writing this, they've lost the thing that is their central piece of their identity. They've lost the place that was vital for their worship and their communal experience. But there's Mark right there, waving his hands off to the side, He's screaming at the Jewish people and the recently Jewish convert, the converted Jewish Christians. He said, hey, we don't actually need the temple anymore. God is on the move now. And let me tell you about it. And that's kind of what his gospel is. It is him trying to speak to the bereaved, which is why the lesson we read this morning is very fascinating. And it perfectly exemplifies how Mark chooses to tell the story of Jesus. In these verses, you can see so much of Mark's identity, so much of his personality. We enter today's text as Jesus has just crossed back across the Sea of Galilee, coming back from the Gentile territory. As he gets out of the boat, he is surrounded by people. Everybody wants to see Jesus. Jairus is a leader from the synagogue, and he's there waiting for Jesus' boat to land. He comes to Jesus and he asks him for help. He says that his daughter is dying and he needs Jesus' help. And without any negotiating, without any fanfare, Jesus says, sure, I'll go. Which is interesting, and we'll talk about why that's interesting in just a moment. But as they're walking, people are all, are all over him. They're trying to touch him or maybe snap a selfie with him, right? They, they want to get his autograph. I don't think they're probably trying to snap selfies. They probably didn't have the front-facing cameras then. They're still using the razors. But I, I like to think of it like this. 
when Patrick Mahomes showed up to Kansas City after they won the Super Bowl and everybody's trying to like get near him and take pictures and get the autograph, like that's the same thing going on with Jesus here. The disciples, they're basically his entourage and they're trying to keep the people back. They're trying to keep people off of him. And so they're journeying towards Jairus' house and as they're walking, something strange happens. Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples, they kind of laughed about it. They, they're like, why do you, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody is touching you. They're all trying to touch you. But Jesus knew something had happened. And then this woman came forward, trembling with fear. And she tells Jesus that she had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She had been bleeding for 12 years. And this was significant for two reasons. Not only is there the physical nature of her condition, the great discomfort this causes her, but also the fact that she was seen as unclean according to Jewish law. And this was equally as important to this story as her phys- the physical nature of her ailment. It meant that no one was allowed to touch her and that she was probably avoided by everybody in society. This condition made her an outcast, somebody without much voice, let alone without the opportunity afforded to everyone else. She had been to doctor after doctor and none had been able to help her. She'd heard about Jesus and the miracles he did. And she had faith that he could help her. She thought, if I can just get close enough to touch him on the clothes, on his robe, on the, on the hem of his robe. And so that's what she did. And when she touched Jesus, when she touched Jesus' robes, the text says she was immediately healed. And that's why Jesus stopped. He knew something was different. He knew something happened. And she was afraid. She was afraid she'd been caught. She was afraid she was going to be rebuked. She thought she was going to be punished for making Jesus unclean. She touched someone that wasn't her husband. She touched someone while she was unclean. She was fully expecting for the the weight of the law to be brought down on her for these punishable acts. But what did Jesus do? He looked at her. He didn't condemn her. He did the exact opposite. He called her daughter, not stranger or you woman or who are you? He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Right as they're about to continue on their journey, someone came up to Jesus. They came up to Jairus and told him not to bother Jesus anymore. They said, Jairus, your daughter has passed away. Let the teacher go on his way. But Jesus, he heard what was said and as if he knew exactly what was in Jairus' heart. He told him, he said, do not be afraid, just believe, just have faith. And so he went with Jairus to, the, to his house and he only took with him Peter, James, and John. And when they got there, everyone was crying and grieving. As you would expect, if you walked into the house of a family who just lost somebody they loved very much. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in that house. Maybe it's been your house. And the, the mood is very somber. It's, very, it's filled with grief. But Jesus walked in there and he didn't try to comfort them. He didn't try to say it's going to be all right. He said, what's all this commotion and wailing about? Why are y'all crying? The child isn't dead. She's just asleep. Which if you think about it, like if that happened today, if that happened in my house, if somebody just walked in when a family member had just passed away and they're like, why are you crying? Y'all need to get over it. Y'all need to stop. Y'all need to stop all this nonsense. I, like, I'd have it come apart. I just would. I, I would lose it. 
But that's kind of what Jesus does. He walks in there and says, why are you crying? The, the child is not dead. She's just asleep. And so he, he put everybody out. He, he put them out of the house. And he said, Peter, James, John, mom, dad, you know, we're going to go to the back. Let's go. They, they go back there and he takes the little girl's hand. And he, he said to her, very simply, little girl, I say to you, get up. Then immediately, there's that word again, immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. You know, this story is similar in structure to much of Mark's gospel. We actually have two stories going on here, right? I mean, he moves so fast that sometimes he takes two stories and combines them into one to really get the point across. There's the story of Jairus, and then there's the story of the hemorrhaging woman. One interrupts the other, but somehow they seem to work together perfectly, don't they? Bible scholars, the, the sorts of people who want to write lots of extra words, who make you read lots of extra words to try to explain things, they do have a word for this kind of story. They call it a chiasm. A chiasm is when you repeat yourself in reverse. A really short one is something like, quitters never win, winners never quit and quitters never win. Right? Winners never quit and quitters never win. Saying the same thing, but in reverse. Same sentiment with two different directions. Mark is the master of chiasms. He writes in this chiastic structure in different chapters, let alone within stories. I mean, he might tell five stories, one and then the other, and then the other, and then the other, and then the other. And when you get to the end, you'll see that they were just one big chiasm. Like, in the beginning of Mark, in the second chapter and third chapter, there's a healing story, and then a controversy story, and then a teaching story. And then there's another controversy story and a healing story. At the center of each chiasm is the turning point that holds them all together. And in this one, we hear this. Your faith has made you well. Do not fear, just have faith. This bold woman and Jairus, they don't have much in common, but they shared enough faith to keep moving with Jesus. Do you notice at the end of this story, how Jesus, though, he told him not to say anything. He said, don't tell anybody about the little girl's healing. He does that a lot in Mark. It's something just kind of unique. He, he does something great for somebody, and then he tells them, hey, I know that this is pretty awesome, but don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody what happened. Very rarely do people actually not tell people. The commentaries on Mark, they call this the messianic secret. The disciples, it's essentially this, the disciples are the people who should know Jesus. They should know him best but they are the people who fail to recognize who he is. He is constantly teaching them, and they ask themselves, who is he? Who is this? And rather than slowing down to explain even more, Jesus just keeps going, and along the way, he encounters the ones that are so desperate for a single word from Jesus that just that one word alone can change their life. And they're the ones who leap up and say that they have found the Messiah. Jairus was a Jewish leader. The Jewish leaders didn't like Jesus. They wanted to and eventually succeeded in getting Jesus crucified. So this guy shouldn't be Jesus's friend or looking for his help. He's Jesus's enemy as far as the way we understand, you know, good guys and bad guys, right? And Jesus doesn't really have any main incentive to help him. But instead of negotiating with him to like, hey, can you get your friends off my back? Can y'all give me a little space? When Jairus, this synagogue leader, 
This Jewish leader says to him, will you help me? My little girl is dying. He says with no reservation, yes, I will help you. Despite his outsideness, Jairus had just as much faith in Jesus. And that bold faith is something that he acted on. The same is true for the afflicted woman. The man, Jesus, was not her husband. She had no reason to trust him. She likely not ventured out much into large groups to hear his teaching. She was not a member of Jesus' inner circle. She was not a practitioner of his teachings. Yet her faith compelled her to trust in him. And she was made well because of that faith. In Mark, we also hear about a blind man who hears Jesus walking by and cries out, Son of David, have mercy. Or the centurion that crucified Jesus and then became the first person to confess, surely this was the Son of God. It's the woman who stays close at the cross and then visits the tomb. They didn't need to hear more words. They didn't need these explanations. They didn't need all this extra stuff. They needed to be near Jesus. I bet there's probably somebody listening today, somebody worshiping today, who's heard Jesus calling them out of an old death, out of an old way of life that just makes them feel deep down dark and alone. Calling you out of habits and secrets that have gotten you into good places of hiding. And you say, Jesus, I'll catch up with you just as soon as I I make sure those secrets are good and buried, right? But in the gospel of Mark, Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Come and follow me. We often ask Jesus, where are you heading with all this? And Jesus says, that's not the point. The point is that today I am here. And the point is that wherever I go tomorrow, if you follow me, you will be with me. We say, you know, I, I, I want to make sure I'm doing it all for the right reasons. I, I want to feel it in my heart. And he says, the right reason is that I said it. <laughs> Trust my heart and I'll take care of yours. You know, there comes a time when the only way we're going to learn the way of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the power of Jesus, is if we're willing to have the kind of faith that moves. I mean, after all, faith is not about having the words to describe the physical properties of a parachute. Faith is jumping out of the plane. For Mark, faith in Jesus is neither automatic nor easy. Faith in Jesus doesn't occur just by sitting and listening to more words about faith. The disciples were with him the most, but understood him the least. Those who heard the most should know what faith really means, but they don't. And those who've heard the least, but are moved, those are the ones whose faith can heal. You know, we Christians, we're good at putting a stranglehold on faith based on our own perspectives, based on our own ways of thinking and lives and experiences based on our own words and ideas. Whoever has the best words, whoever has the most words has to have the best faith. And those who do not believe as we do, they're surely not as close to Jesus as we are. Those that don't act like us, they're obviously persons of little faith. Yet, If the messianic secret here in Mark is to be believed, are not we who are so wrapped up in the words of faith less likely to actually understand who Christ is? 
Those of us bent towards religiosity on our own terms might have the propensity to miss how Jesus is actually revealing himself in the most real ways. The person who we think has the least perspective on faith might actually have the greatest. And who knows? We might be more like the disciples. Earnest in our intent, sure but missing the mark more than we realize. If we can step out like Jairus, like the bold woman, then a single word from the Savior can make all the difference. May we be a church that realizes faith isn't about how many words we have, but how those words move us. May we be a church that accepts that our own obsessions with our own ways of thinking might, not, might be the very thing that keep us from seeing God fully. And may that lead us to see faith in the most unexpected places and in the most unexpected people and cause us to move closer to Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you continue to help us to know how we can move with this faith, how we are not satisfied by words alone or righteous study, but by actions that draw us closer to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.